We all have regrets in life, right? Hopefully none of you have any of those regrets. Although I know some of you, and I'm thinking you probably do, uh, some of us grew up in a time before helmets and elbow pads. Right? We grew up in a time of concrete blocks and rotting plywood used as bicycle ramps. Like there was a day, those were the good old days, right? Like those, <laughs> oh, that's the most feedback I've had in months. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, some of, some of us grew up in, before seatbelts, right? Back of the pickup truck doing 65 miles an hour down a dirt road somewhere. Yeah, some of us have those kind of stories in our past, maybe, maybe in our recent past. But I think all of us have regrets. And again, maybe it's distant past for you. If you think of regrets, it's, it's a long, long time ago. Or, or maybe it's really recent, or maybe it's this morning, or, or, or maybe it's stuff you've dealt with, you, you've kind of moved beyond, you've gotten over, uh, or maybe it's lingering regrets that just seem to crop up again and again and again. We all have them. So, so we're starting this series uh, called Regrets, if you notice the, uh, the graphic. Um, most of the time we talk about regrets, I think most of the time when I talk about it, I immediately want to go to the not allowing regrets to impact our future. Like, let's, let's put them behind us. The past is in the past, and uh, God's working in the present, and God's working in the future. And so let's not let those regrets impact our future. Or I, I tend to move towards uh, how do we make sure we don't have regrets in the future? And by the way, we'll talk about both of those in this series. Later on in this series, we're going to talk about... Uh, dealing with regrets and, and not letting them sabotage your future. We're going to talk about doing things today that prevent regrets in the future. All of that's coming up. But I, I want to kick it off from a different place. And maybe it's not the place you were expecting. And, and maybe it's not even the place you wanted. Uh, but you're here now and you can't leave or we'll talk about you. So you're kind of stuck. I, I, I want to start from the place of there's sometimes good in regret. Not everything about regret is bad. Regret can be extremely helpful. It, it, can, it, it can be a part of learning. It, it, it can be a part of growth. It can be a part of transformation. And we don't need to deny that part of regret. Think about it this way. You and I have to feel regret in order to learn from regret. No, nobody ever learned from a regret that they didn't feel. Right? We have to feel a level of regret if we're ever going to grow from that, if we're ever going to learn from that, if we're ever going to be transformed by that regret. Well, we know this, some of your parents, we know this as parents because when we're disciplining our kids, when we're confronting our kids, we will sometimes ask them, do you know what you did was wrong? When you hit your sister in the head with the toy, do you realize that was wrong? Right? We want them to feel a sense of this is wrong. And maybe you wouldn't use the term regret, or maybe you would. But we want them to know this is wrong, don't do it again. When we become adults, things haven't changed. We don't learn from mistakes unless we acknowledge mistakes. Now, more and more, I think we live in a world where 
the initial response to mistakes is not to admit it, not to say, yeah, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. I, I regret doing that and I want to change. I think m- most of the time the initial response is to justify or to rationalize. Right? It's to use the, well, I'm not the only one who's ever done this. Like, well, people have done things far worse than that. This was a small thing. Or it's really not that big of a deal. Or you shouldn't judge me. Or you don't know me. I'm going to live my own life. We have all of these ways of rationalizing so that we don't have to admit it was wrong. I don't need to do that again. I need to change something about my life so I don't end up in that situation again. I'm sorry to swerve into politics, but it's it's one of the easiest places to find regret right now, right? For all of us, we all regret a lot of things about politics right now. Um, we've arrived at a time in, in the political spectrum where whenever one side is accused of something, they immediately say, well, one of your people did that a while back and you didn't say anything then. Have you, have you seen this on Twitter and in and, and, uh, interviews with politicians? Well, your person did something unethical or immoral or illegal. Well, one of your persons did it like 10 years ago, and you weren't bothered by it then. The problem is both, all sides of the political world have done plenty that is unethical and illegal and immoral. And so we're in this never-ending cycle of, yeah, but you did, yeah, but you did, yeah, but... It's called whataboutism. That's kind of the new term that's been coined. Whataboutism, whenever you accuse the other side of something, they say, well, what about when so-and-so did this and you didn't say anything then? The problem is we end up in this never-ending loop of rationalizing things that are wrong, defending, overlooking things that are wrong. And, and I don't think it's just in the political spectrum. I think it's beyond politics. We explain away our mistakes. We explain away our problems by saying things like, well, it really wasn't that big a deal. Well, other people have done it. Well, I'm not the first to ever do that. So sometimes we do it again as parents. We step on this side Not on the, do you know what you did is wrong, but we step on the rationalizing side. Because when our kids get in trouble, parents will sometimes intervene to keep them from experiencing the consequences of whatever choice they made at school or they didn't do their homework. And so we're going to write a note and ask the teacher not to count it against them. Or we're going to let them stay home so they can finish their homework. Parents can sometimes intervene when mistakes are made so that kids don't feel consequences. We are a rationalizing, defensive society. But the problem for kids, for adults, for teenagers, for college students, the problem is until we can admit that something is wrong, we don't ever learn from that mistake that we made. If you remember back to uh, Psychology 101, you you took it in college maybe, and you studied Pavlov and all of his experiments. And, and basically, the classical conditioning idea was you learn from the mistakes that you made, such as you touch a hot stove one time, right? You put your hand on a hot stove one time, and your brain remembers that so that you don't ever do it again because it's painful. You don't want to do it. Now, some people have illnesses or, or diseases where the, the nerve endings uh, don't respond to pain. And so theoretically, hopefully this doesn't happen, but theoretically, 
they could touch something very, very hot. And even though damage is being done, they don't sense it. They don't realize this is a bad idea. I should move my hand in a similar way. I think for a lot of us, our conscience kind of goes to sleep sometimes. Our radar, our ability to detect this is wrong, our sensitivity to, I should stop this. I should not do this anymore, wears down and gets replaced with defensiveness and rationalization. And and this is part of what I mean about the good and regret. When I feel that sense of regret, it is a great warning sign to me. Part of the good and regret is that it can lead us to change. It leads us away from those things that have been damaging to us personally, to our relationships, to our future. It leads us away from those things that can sabotage our life and into a more fruitful, productive path. Paul talks about this idea uh, in a couple of places in the New Testament. And and I want to start in Romans chapter 2. Romans over in the New Testament, so it's kind of towards the back of your Bible. If you want to find it in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the Gospels, then Acts, and then Romans. Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 1, Paul gives, in the second half of Romans 1, Paul gives this extensive list of disobedience. Sin, we would call it sin. Things that are disobedient to God, extensive, sometimes graphic, very detailed list. Here are a lot of ways that people are sinning against God, disobeying God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is primarily talking about the Gentiles, people that are on the outside of the church. He's primarily talking about the, the culture that the Romans are living in. Paul's saying, look, where you live, a lot of bad stuff's going on. People are doing a lot of the wrong things. People are sinning in a lot of different ways. Then in Romans chapter 2, Paul turns the conversation like this. Verse 1, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same thing. So for the second half of chapter 1, Paul's essentially, my words a little bit, Paul's essentially been saying they, they, they. This is what they're doing. This is what's happening to those people outside of Christ who don't believe in Jesus, the culture, those people out there. This is what they're doing. But then in Romans chapter 2, he turns a conversation around and says, but you need to listen to a few things as well. You need to pay attention to a couple of things as well. Now, I I, I sense maybe Paul's writing this letter, and when he gets through chapter 1, he knows that there will be a lot of people who read this letter who are going to agree with everything in Romans chapter 1. They're going to think, that's right, I'm glad somebody's finally saying it. I'm glad somebody's pointing this out. We should have said this a long time ago. What they're doing is terrible. And so Paul then says, well, let's stop talking about them. Let's talk about you for a minute. Let's let's talk about the fact that, yes, a lot of bad stuff's going on out there, but you don't seem capable of acknowledging the bad stuff that's going on in you. The, the, The struggles that you're having, the mistakes that you're making, 
the decisions that you've made that weren't for the best. Let's talk about you. Now, everything in chapter 1 is still sin. Paul's not excusing chapter 1. Paul's not saying, I was just kidding about chapter 1 so I could talk about chapter 2. Chapter 1, still disobedience. But in chapter 2, Paul says, there's a whole other problem. When a group of people can see all the wrongs that are being done by them and none of the wrongs that are happening inside of you. All of the wrongs that the culture is guilty of. All of the wrongs that society is guilty of. But they are capable of taking a deep look inside of their own heart and saying, you know what, there's some stuff that I need to clean up too. There's some things that I should regret about choices that I've recently made. This is verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Let's stop focusing on them for a minute. Let's think about you. If you ignore the struggles in your own heart, you are, Paul says, without excuse. Now, he'd said that about the people in chapter 1. They're without excuse, verse 20. And he says the same thing about the people who were going to church, the people who claimed to believe in Jesus. He said, you're without excuse if you don't own the weight of your own disobedience. Jesus took up this idea in Matthew 7, kind of a familiar uh, place. Jesus said, why are you so worried about the speck in somebody else's eye and you don't see the log in your own eye? Why don't you deal with you? It's not that all of the other stuff isn't wrong because it is, but you need to deal with you first of all. And this is where I think a lot of us struggle today. We struggle in the area of self-assessment. We, we struggle in the, ser- in the area of self-awareness. We struggle to say, yeah, I've got some things that I need to work out as well. And, and, and maybe part of Paul's point is that there's more than one way to live in sin. Yeah, you can live in disobedience overtly. Decide you don't believe in God, you don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, you don't believe the Bible. You can be very overt in living in sin, but it doesn't always show itself that way. Sometimes we live in continual disobedience to God because we see the problems with everybody else, but we don't own the struggles in ourselves. And so Paul poses this question. Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Like, do you not, do do you think God doesn't see what you're doing? Do, Do you think God doesn't recognize the things that are going on in your heart and in your head? And and, and then he asks this question. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. If we live our lives continually rationalizing our own mistakes, defending our own mistakes, Paul describes that as showing contempt for the kindness of God, presuming upon the grace of God, 
God is fine with me. There's no problems. God loves me. Everything's fine, and God does love you. But Paul says, if you don't acknowledge when you make a mistake, this is presuming upon the goodness and the grace and the kindness of God. Now, we'll talk about this later, but that doesn't mean... We're supposed to continually feel guilty for everything we've ever done wrong. That's not what he's saying. That we're supposed to carry around the weight and the load of our own disobedience just forever. We're supposed to be reminded of it day after day after day. That's not what he means. But Paul is saying that that initial regret that you and I should feel when we disobey God, that's a good thing from God. That's a gift of his kindness. That's one of the ways He directs our decision-making, forms our relationships, transforms our actions and attitudes, is when we feel that ping in our heart, we feel that ping in our conscience that says, you really shouldn't do that again. You need to turn away from that. His phrase is, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. That, that strike in your heart, that, that awakening in your head, that thought that maybe I shouldn't have said that, maybe I shouldn't have done that, maybe I shouldn't be going down this path. Paul says that's a generous gift from God that should lead you to turn around. It should lead you to change. This is the goodness of regret. It's a gift from God. When you and I have the awareness of our own shortcomings, and if a short-term regret can cause me to change and prevent me from experiencing negative consequences that would come in my future if I continue down this path, that's a gift from God. So don't treat it casually. Don't don't defend and rationalize. 2 Corinthians is two books to the right uh, from Romans. Uh, We we have two books, two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And then there was a third one, we think, in the middle. And in the third one, Paul got very animated, apparently. He confronts the Corinthians in, in, a, in a bit of a harsh manner. He's very direct. You need to fix this. You need to pay attention to this. You need to stop doing this. So in 2 Corinthians 7, he references that letter. And, and I'm going to summarize it, and then, and then I'll read it. But basically, Paul says, I'm sorry I was so harsh in the other letter, but I'm really not sorry. Right? You ever have one of those conversations? I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because you needed to hear it. And I know it it wasn't fun, like the conversation we had wasn't a lot of fun, and you didn't like it, and I didn't really like it. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry, because there were some things that just needed to be said. Here's how Paul writes it, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. What an interesting phrase. You became sorrowful as God intended. 
You regretted it the way God wanted you to. You felt bad the way God wanted you to feel bad so that you would turn away from it. So you take your hand off the hot stove so you wouldn't do it again. You recognize, I need to stop this and turn back, repent, go back towards God. Now, if you read the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, there are seasons of this happening. God's people in the Old Testament go their own way. They make their own choices. They worship false gods. They, they follow bad leaders. And time and time again, God brings them back to repentance. And sometimes it's an individual who repents. Sometimes it's the whole nation. Sometimes God calls the whole nation to turn away from their sin, to recognize what they've been doing is wrong, and to turn back to Him. They, they would even symbolize it in what they wore. Sometimes they would wear, the Bible says, sackcloth and ashes. And they would sit in the dirt, or they would sit in the ashes. It was a symbolic way of saying, God, we get it. We know that what we were doing was wrong, and we want to be right with you again. We want to stop that Now, we don't wear sackcloth, and we don't have any ashes for you today, and, and we don't have a lot of symbolism when it comes to that anymore, but our hearts still need it. Our, our hearts need regular times where we go, you were right, I was wrong, God. You told me I didn't listen. You said I disobeyed. And I want to come back to you. And Paul, in both places, says this is the goodness of God. That this type of sorrow would bring you back to Him. Not cause you to continually live with guilt. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you would embrace the conviction that comes from God's Spirit, it would lead you back into right relationship with God. And it would impact your future because you'd stop doing that. you stop living your life the way that you've been living it and bring it under the authority of the direction of God, again, and you'll stop getting defensive. Right? You, you'll stop saying things like, well, you should mind your own business. It's my life. I'm going to live it however I want. What I did is not as bad as what somebody else. You, you'll set that aside, and you'll embrace the loving, kind work of the Holy Spirit when He says, don't do that anymore. Don't keep going down that path. Don't keep turning your head in that direction so that whatever that is, stop sabotaging your future, sabotaging your relationships, sabotaging the potential that God has put in you. You cut that off. I cut that off when I turn back to God. You see, Far more troublesome than the problems my sin caused me, relationally or personally or in my career or in my future, far more troublesome than the problems that it causes me in my relationships to other people is the problem it causes me in relationship to God. That this interrupts what God is doing in my life. I don't lose my salvation. I'm going to get kicked out of the family of God. But it breaks my life from the power of God's Spirit working and separates me from all that God wants to accomplish in my life. The most important thing is that 
It interrupts my relationship with God. Sometimes when we think about correcting our habits or, or defending our mistakes, we are mostly worried about what other people will think or what other people will know. Not that that's unimportant, but that's just not most important. What's most important about regret is it reminds me I need to get back in right relationship with God. So what does regret do for us? A couple of thoughts. Godly regret causes me to recognize the specifics of my failures. There's an ownership. I give up on defenses. I give up on rationalizations. I own what God says is true about me. And again, I I stop trying to cover up the consequences of my actions in front of everybody else, which is usually the way we lead. Do you remember David in in the Old Testament? David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then his first thought is, how do I cover this up so nobody else knows? That's the first direction he starts down. How do I cover this up with her husband? How do I cover this up with the people who work under me? Ultimately, how do I cover this up for the nation? He goes into a mode of damage control. Like, how do I keep anybody from figuring out what happened? But when, when David owns that regret, when, when David is confronted with his disobedience and he prays a prayer of repentance to God, this is part of his prayer from Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's talking to God. God, this is mainly that I failed you. This is mainly that I've sinned against you. And had had David sinned against Bathsheba, sure he had. Using his authority and power to manipulate and take advantage of her, sure he had sinned against her. Had he sinned against her husband? Yeah, he had him killed. Had he sinned against his position as king by misusing his authority? All of that is true. But when David owned what he had done, his first response was, God, I want, I want to make things right with you. That's what Paul meant when he said the kindness of God is that in sorrow that is as God intends, it will lead us to repent and turn back to God. Another thought. Godly regret leads to change. Godly regret leads to change. It means I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to go down this path Anymore. I don't want to keep making this same mistake. Certainly, uh, some of the, the most challenging struggles in our lives, they don't happen with one prayer. Like They're not gone automatically because we prayed about it one time or we worked really hard at it for one week. I mean, so, most of us have a, a few struggles deep down that they resurface again and again, and it's, it's months, it's years. Sometimes it's lifetime of turning away from a deep struggle, but, but godly regret leads to continued change. It leads to transformation. Worldly sorrow, that was another term that Paul used. Worldly sorrow just leaves us feeling guilty. It just weighs our heart down. Godly sorrow realizes that, God, I'm forgiven of this because of Jesus, and I want to turn away from this. We sang some wonderful songs this morning about forgiveness and the beauty of forgiveness. We sang that old hymn, Jesus Paid It 
awe, which is just, just beautiful lyrics. But we have to remember that the word all is in there. Jesus paid for all of the things that I've done wrong. Forgiveness loses its beauty if you and I don't recognize we, we have something to be forgiven of. Forgiveness loses its power if you and I can't admit I need that beautiful forgiveness in my life. I need God to come and take away the sin that's in my life. And the Bible is full of example after example where God does this. Like wipes the slate clean. God doesn't say you've messed up, you've got to carry this for the rest of your life. He takes that burden away because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're, we're wiped clean. But that is real. The, the sin is real. One more thought. Godly sorrow leads to freedom. Difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to freedom. This forgiveness that God offers means you and I don't have to carry that anymore. You and I don't have to pay for that. We don't have to keep reliving it. We don't have to keep beating ourselves up over it. We walk in the freedom of the forgiveness of God, knowing that our repentance and the freedom that God gives transforms us to live a new life now, transforms us to live differently than we did before. See, I just, I just think there's some good in regret. There's good in acknowledging, God, I need this forgiveness in my life. God, I need to turn away from some things, admittedly. For some of us, our regret meter, the dial on our regret meter is turned way up. Like we live with it all the time. And, and my goal to, today is not to make that worse for you. Some of us are really sensitive to our past mistakes, and, and that meter's just turned all the way up. And so we're just running through all the things that we've ever done wrong. That, that's not the point of the, today. T the point of today is to say that when we've wrong and we come, when we when we've done wrong and we come before God, we have access to complete, total, forever forgiveness. But Paul says you got to bring that to Him. You got to acknowledge this is wrong, and God, I want you to take it away, and I want you to change me so I don't end up here again. I don't want us to, to be people who are just in the habit of dismissing what the Holy Spirit does in our life. Dismissing the, the prick that the Holy Spirit gives to us during those moments of, of sin. But that we would allow the kindness of God to turn us back to Him. And maybe you need to do that today. Not walk back through every mistake that you've made, but... Acknowledge maybe there is something in your life that you just haven't fully admitted to God. God already knows. God already sees it. He's waiting on us to acknowledge it so that He can go to work on it. And maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Let's pray. The band's going to come out. They're going to sing and... It, 
you don't need to sing and you don't need to stand. They're just going to sing a song over us. And I'm asking each of us to, to search our hearts and ask, am I making excuses about any area of my life? Am I defensive about any area of my life? Is there anything I need to bring before God this morning? I just say, God, help me change this. I don't want to keep walking down this path. Help, help me be different. This is your moment. This is your moment. As they're singing this song, you don't have to tell anybody else. But somebody needs to tell God today. God, I see it. I agree with it. I admit it. I want to turn to you. I want to be forgiven. That's a good regret. That's a good moment. The Holy Spirit does His healing, refining work in us. God, I pray that you would come and search our hearts. Pray you help us be honest and not defensive. I pray that our priority would, would not be how we rationalize it to other people, but our priority would be that our relationship with you is right. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, our relationships are pleasing to you. And so search us, refine us, heal us, forgive us today. In Jesus' name.